least good to go. Um, well, everyone, I hope you got all your reading assignment done. There was a few few pages there to be at, um, and a lot of questions that uh, Elizabeth left us to answer. And I know we have a lot to cover. Obviously, this is the out chance to discuss before we release it to the public. And we'll have another chance to discuss after we get it to the public. Um, so, um, you know, part of, you know, today's meeting is not so much what we want it to look like as much as what we want released to the public for them to look at, um, which I think is slightly different. And so, again, if you haven't been through everything, you'll still have another chance when we come back and whenever that next meeting is, which we'll talk about later, which I don't remember, but... Mm -hmm. But we want to make sure what we're putting out there is is what we want the public reacting to. So, Elizabeth, I know you've got a PowerPoint. And yeah, and before we can, yeah. uh, Luke can give the kind of the intro. Oh, I forgot. Yeah. Uh, you go, Luke. Okay, thank you, everybody. Um, uh, like I said, or like Becky said, my name is Luke Mortensen. Um, I'll be helping to facilitate this afternoon's Zoom. Um, I will work alongside Chair Finkeldye to facilitate this uh, afternoon's meeting. A few quick items, though, this meeting is being recorded and broadcast on the city's YouTube channel and cable channel 25. For those who are attending online, please remember to mute yourselves during the meeting when you are not speaking. Uh, the chat function for the public is disabled, um, but chats will go directly to me. Um, unless you are participating during the meeting, please turn your video off as well. This allows the active meeting participants to be seen on screen. You will still be able to hear the meeting, uh, and when you are participating, please remember to turn your video back on. If you're having any trouble, you can chat me and we can try to figure that out. Um, the city reserves the right to mute people or turn individual videos off to minimize distractions, and with that, I will send it back to Chair Finkelback. Thank you so much. I was too excited, so excited to get going, so thank you for that. But now I'll turn it over to Elizabeth and yeah. we can take okay. it away. Thank you so much. Okay, so we're going to do a fairly short overview um, and just point out some of the highlighted changes. Um, we're going to have some of the preliminary results from the meeting in a box exercise to share with everybody. Um, and then we'll see uh, where we want to take the conversation this evening. So let's go ahead and start with the um, steering committee presentation. Okay, so. Uh, we are on module two. This, so this was our agenda for this evening, which everyone got. Um, and so we're going to do the um, scheduling and module drafting right now. Um, module two, uh, we're going to switch out the module two and meeting in a box. We'll do meeting in a box in module two. And we've got um, discussion on most of the module two topics for this evening, but we held some of them um, for full discussion in November. Um, knowing that it was just a lot to get to. Then we'll talk about November outreach, talk about the potential for having a December meeting, just based on what the group's preference is, um, leave time for public comment at the end of the meeting, and then um, whatever next steps we have to the next slide. So where are we? Um, so we are here on development standards. We're in the middle of drafting the um, three modules, districts and uses, development standards, and administration and procedures. Um, and so as soon as we get through this in administration and procedures, then we wrap it up into a consolidated draft starting earlier ne early next year. Do the next slide. So we wanted just to take a minute, um, and you'll all, I'm sure, love that I decided we needed a Halloween theme for our PowerPoint yesterday. 
So this is knitting it together. So we had some questions come up about what's happening with the comments that are out there. And so our drafting process is this. We draft each module, we review it with the steering committee, we make committee updates, and then we share it with the community and ask for comments. When we have all three modules drafted, we start creating a consolidated draft where we pull everything together. That's when we review the comments that we have and we start deciding what we want to respond to and where we want to go with that. So um, we have collected and sorted all of the comments and we'll email those out to you guys after the meeting and we are posting them on the website so the whole community can see what comments have come in. So just wanted, in case you had taking the time to submit comments. They haven't been forgotten, they will get in there. So let's switch over to meeting in a box just for a few minutes to give you guys some of the feedback, uh, some of the community input we got on this. So we had this exercise open from August 3rd to November 9th. We had 139, 139 respondents. So those but came in both online and from neighborhood meetings. So they brought them in and submitted it to staff. And then across um, all of the responses we had, we had more than 500 individual comments. So on a variety of topics in there, let's go through and see. We summarized a little bit here. So the first question was, what neighborhood do you live in or most closely associate with? Um, so sorted um, most responses to fewest responses. Um, we got West Lawrence, East Lawrence, Sunset Hill, other. Um, so could have been people that didn't want to name a neighborhood or didn't feel like they were associated with the neighborhood. Um, Pinckney and University Place, Deerfield, and then downtown. And then we start really moving down into the um, responses across a number of neighborhoods, but a few, only a few responses in there. Um, and there's, we're not looking for a good or bad here. We are looking for information. So just informationally, this is where we're hearing from. And then you can see on the right side of the screen, um, the neighborhoods that we got no responses from, just to let you know. So we asked in a word. Was there no response yeah. from county residents? I don't think we left county as an option okay. in there. Like they could, they could the be other. other. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So um, these were the top responses of what's the flavor, vibe, or type, or description of your neighborhood. Um, just wanted to see how people see themselves. And you might remember when we had this discussion um, earlier in the year, one of the things we were reaching for was what is important in the neighborhood um, in terms of um, how it comes together or how it fits, and what is um, in this list that we want to see as we go forward. And this is a pretty broad list, actually. Um, so we have suburban and we have low density, we have traditional, we have established, urban, eclectic, single family, walkable, historic, busy, and incomplete. And um, we did incomplete in orange because that was the only one that um, stuck out as maybe a little more, I don't like the vibe, um, or maybe they're still building it. So let's go to the next question. So what would you like to live in? As compared to where you are, what would you like to live in? Some overlap here. Um, so mature, convenient, vibrant, energetic, mixed use, low density, traditional, walkable, friendly. Um, so for your convenience on the next slide, we did the overlap. 
Um, so these were some of our preferred descriptions, the highest ranking preferred descriptions. Um, and here, even here, we have differences. So we have suburban and walkable, vibrant, diverse, complete, safe, single family, and friendly. Um, so our takeaway from this is um, that many types of neighborhoods can meet these descriptions. They don't describe, you know, one um, sort of monolithic neighborhood preference in Lawrence, which is, you know, where we're going with the code, reflecting different things in different places. So we then broke it down into elements. So let's do the next slide. So you might remember we had elements or qualities. Go back up to the Thanks. Housing types, building placement, landscaping, and open space. Um, and we had a pretty robust um, description, uh, sorry, discussion about what it would mean to put these questions out to the public and what they would respond to. Let's do the next slide. Other elements and qualities um, come down. These are a little more detailed. So consistent architectural arrow, location of garages, um, parking, a defining feature. So we asked people to tell us about what's important in their um, neighborhood. Three to five options that you think make your neighborhood unique or a great place to live. And what we saw were pretty expansive, actually. Um, we saw that people like sidewalks and street trees, um, proximity uh, to jobs, school, and other services, proximity to public space and open spaces. Housing types comes in as number four. That's the first time we've really gotten into the architecture of the neighborhood. Um, and then we're back out to landscaping and open space, um, demographic mix. And then we start getting the responses start kind of trailing off. So building separation and placement, that's the end of our top answers. So let's flip to the bottom. Um, so we've, we've come down a little bit from the last one to here. So, um, consistently at this end, we have the more specific details. So is it architecture? Is it private open space? Is it garages, building height? Um, what we thought was interesting in here was where parking ranked um, second to last um, as something that makes it a unique or great place to live. Um, and so let's go to the next slide. We did a few um, takeaways. Um, from these responses, and we realize they're not scientific, but we think that they are um, informative to the project. So connections are important. If you go back two slides, Brody, connections are important. So connections literally, sidewalks, but then proximity to jobs and school and proximity to parks and open space. Um, and those are all design decisions that we can make within the code in a variety of neighborhood types. We don't have to be one thing um, to get to the proximity that ranks really high. So then let's go back to that one. Um, for the five top responses are about location and amenities, right? So the parks, the sidewalks, that's the streetscape. Um, these, are, these aren't as um, tied down as we thought they might be in our earlier conversation. Our top three structural responses, so that's housing types, building separation, and building placement can be regulated in different ways in different locations. So again, that's, that is more of a flexible regulation. Um, elements that could impact the cost of housing construction, architectural style, garage location, building height, ranked lower than most of the other characteristics. Um, and then hardly any of the respondents to this round are worried about parking in their neighborhoods. So that doesn't mean there aren't people, um, there aren't people who aren't worried, there are. Um, but in this round, we weren't seeing it rank as high. So I think that's 
Yeah, so we have a few responses to share. We asked for input. We'll share the entire list with you after um, we've cleaned it up just a little bit more. Um, so we asked people, what do you think is a great neighborhood with a range of housing types? Um, and these were the answers we got. And we some of our um, respondent comments were like a mix of apartments, duplexes, and housing above small shops. Um, we had, you know, I don't think there needs to be a wide range of housing types. And then the streets um, just east of downtown are so lovely in this aspect. And then we asked, and what do you think is a great neighborhood with many transportation options? And the neighborhoods in orange overlap the previous list. So again, we're seeing um, that the compact, more um, mixed use or adjacent to commercial uses um, areas are getting this positive feedback. And then we're seeing that respondents noted they'd like more transportation options, um, any neighborhood with more roundabout sidewalks and bike paths. And then I would like more biking options that don't involve busy streets. So those, those are some of the responses there. And then we left an open response box and um, we'll share that out with the group after the meeting and you can flip through it and see what people are saying. So before we go back to the other one, I just want to take a minute and see if anyone wants to um, look at any of the slides again. We'll share the PowerPoint with you if you had questions or if, um, just initial thoughts about any of it, or if we should keep going and then hold that for later. Yeah. Did you notice any correlation between types of responses in terms of, say, the qualities desired, the qualities uh, perceived in their own neighborhood versus the location of the neighborhoods? Like, for example, did people, I mean, this is a complete hypothetical, right? Were there a lot of people in one maybe very suburban neighborhood who said, gosh, I wish we could walk to more places? Or was it kind of all over the place? We haven't done that level of detailed analysis yet. We were pulling it together to get you guys the summary. Okay. Um, but I think we asked everybody to name a neighborhood. So mm -hmm. we can pull that apart and share it back out with you later. Yeah. On huge roads, just kind of curious. Yeah. It's a, no, it's, it's a good question. I don't live there, but I want some. Yeah. Because, I mean, there's a study by, um, I forget who it is, but... Uh, Kinder Institute at Rice University, who found out that like something like 40 to 60% of people in the Houston metropolitan area were living in neighborhoods that they that didn't have the characteristics that they wanted to. They, they basically found that like a large portion of people do live exactly where they want to be and are happy with the status quo, but a large portion want something that doesn't exist. I found myself wondering if it was that responses were, I, I like what I know, so I'm already in an area that's got it and I want more, or I know what I like. I'm in a suburban area and I would like it to be something different. Yeah. I'd love to know the answer to that. It'd be really hard to pick that apart, I feel like, without like actual interviews, you know? But it would, I think it's an important question, though, that we don't assume right. one or the other. Right. Because the underlying intention has a big bearing on how yeah. we actually yeah, yeah. plan stuff. Yeah. yeah. Well, and I wonder um, with the increasing housing prices, how they affect the responses. I couldn't afford to live in the neighborhood that is my preferred neighborhood. Yeah. I mean, I'm probably going on on one here, but I feel like in Lawrence, the difference isn't as huge as it would be in, say, like the, the New York City area or the DC area, where like if you want walkability, you're going to pay like crazy. Right. Here, it's not quite the same, it seems. It's right. not. It's, but I agree with that completely. And because there's still room to build in Lawrence, it gives us some idea of going forward some of the qualities that um, residents and future residents might want to see. Right. Yeah. The other way to look at that, the two, the two biggest. Responding category, Old West Lawrence and East Lawrence gave us the most responses. And then when you said, you know, what's na what neighborhoods do you like? Mm -hmm. West Lawrence and East Lawrence, yeah, yeah. you know, ended up on the list, you yeah. know. And so, you know, makes sense. Yeah, I mean, it makes sense. We will do some more slicing the data. And we thought about um, 
reopening this one, but we think we're going to go with a new round. Um, we think we need to move forward with more questions. So um, that's that. We'll share it out. Let's go into tonight's um, presentation. And I'm sorry that I'm, I am feeling like I'm rushing through, but I do want to give you guys plenty of time to talk. So, okay. So let's jump into module two. So reminding of us, our goals, um, opportunities to achieve city goals in um, climate change, sustainability, housing, economic development, and other community priorities, creating more predictable development outcomes, establishing a simpler, more consistent set of development procedures, and making the land development code more user-friendly, searchable, and easy to understand. So tonight, we focus particularly on um, Article 9 site and structure. There's a lot of new content in there. And then also a lot of content that we pulled out of the um, community design manual that you may have looked at and may not have. Um, 10 Mobility and Connectivity is um, has a lot of new content also. Subdivision Design and Improvement, um, you may have looked at. Right now, it sits separately from the rest of the code. In this draft, we've moved at least the design in for this conversation. And we know that Lawrence shares um, the um, urban area subdivision regulations with Douglas County. Um, so we aren't exactly sure how it's gonna live in the end. So for conversation, it's here. Um, don't stay awake worrying about where it's gonna go. We got it. Um, parking, loading, and access. We made just a few small tweaks in there, nothing big, don't even worry about it. Um, environmentally sensitive lands, landscaping and buffering, exterior lighting and measurement and definition. So we'll touch on each just a little bit, um, but the ones in teal a little bit more. So go ahead. Okay, summary of changes. So starting in Article 9, we did some updates for redevelopment. We moved the infrastructure and utility standards out of the subdivision regulations. So that's historically where they would have gone because Planners did zoning and engineers did subdivision. And um, it was that way until, I don't know, mid-70s, when we started mashing it all up together. The reason we pull the infrastructure and utility requirements out of subdivision is because the city wants to see redevelopment. Some of that redevelopment is going to need to do upgraded infrastructure and utility improvements. So we didn't want anyone to say um, very you know, legalistically, oh, it's in the subdivision regulations. I don't have to do it. It also helps us all think about some of the costs of redevelopment um, because as we add requirements to the regulations, we add costs to development and redevelopment. And we wanna make sure that we're balancing um, in a manner that's gonna get to the development the city wants to see at a price point that's gonna keep developers doing it. We also added um, a holding place for a discussion about parks and open space dedication. And so the city doesn't currently require open space dedication with subdivisions, um, which is a little unusual, but we think the Kansas legislature had something to do that. I'm not gonna look at Marcy because it's not her fault. Mm -hmm. And um, so I think Jeff, you told me that it was in for a while, it was out for a while. And now as the parks plan is coming back up, we're gonna talk about it again. I think that's where they're landing at. I, I'm not fully up to speed with that, but that's the conversation I understand. Okay. So we'll talk about that a little more this evening. Next slide. So then we put in a series of um, what we call residential um, dimensional adjustments or a lot adjustments. And these allow for a variety of different um, housing types. And because they could go in a number of different zoning districts, we put them in the site um, development standards. So here we have cluster development and cottage courts. And 
Um, if you haven't had a chance to flip through it, we did try to put an image of each one in there. So you'd have a starting place of what in the world are they up to? Um, we put the um, very opaquely named local employee residence units and affordable housing in there. It's also a voluntary inclusionary zoning program. So that's something we can talk about. Um, we had some small lot development standards. Um, we have formalized two detached dwellings on a single lot and carried forward zero lot line development. Thanks. So here are the images. So cluster development is has been around for a long time. And that is instead of designing uh, your subdivision to kind of really um, spread out and take up the entirety of the lot, it's keeping the lot smaller and holding um, some of the development in open space. You can hold it in open space for a lot of different reasons. Um, could be environmentally sensitive areas, um, could be open space. Um, we see communities do it with ag land, um, variety of different things there. On the right side, we have cottage court. Um, we also see these called green courts, um, sometimes loop lanes. They have, they used to be called auto courts, but we're kind of trying to minimize the auto part of it. So we <laughs> went with cottage. Um, cottage may yet be weird in Lawrence, so we might want to do a different name, but that is really, we have a number of units. Um, could be single family, could be duplex, um, could be a variety of layouts around a common open space. So we shrink the lots and we put the open space in the middle. Um, lots of this development in the Pacific Northwest and in the Southeast um, probably have some hiding Lawrence also. It's, it's been around for a while, but we're seeing a resurgence of it. So the next hey, just one. a quick question for yeah. you. Just, just when I look at the yeah. example of cluster development, yeah. um, uh, there's a lot of open space there, right? Yeah. Um, uh, same number of, of homes, um, presumably those are homes, you know, the yeah. foundations and things that are poor, but um, are we saying that it's only cluster space if it remains undeveloped? Yes. It has to go into an easement of some sort. Okay. So it, so I'm, I'm going to back that one up. We have worked in communities that ask uh, for cluster if it's on a long development schedule. If like, if you have a, a large acreage and you're like, I really only want to do half of it now, I think it's going to take me 20 years to get to the other half. Um, and then we say, okay, could you hold that open and cluster? But typically it goes into an easement um, in, in perpetuity or however long that is. Does that run contrary to the, the notions of uh, infill development? trying to build density to leverage infrastructure costs. Yeah, so this is gonna help us in places where we have land features that we wanna preserve or okay. in places where open space is beneficial to the community, um, even just the new community that goes in there. So we're trying to get that balance of- It's for a different purpose. Yeah. Yeah, all right, thanks. Yeah. Thank you. Okay, so um, the voluntary um, inclusionary zoning, the local employee residence unit and affordable housing. So what that section does is um, say, if someone wants to build um, units that are um, set aside through deed restriction as an employee residence. So that's someone who's working in Lawrence or retired from working in Lawrence, um, which doesn't necessarily have to meet the affordability requirements, but it's pretty much like a right of first refusal uh, for someone local um, and or affordable, which meets affordability standards within the city um, that we, we essentially have a, fairly broadly drafted density 
uh, bonus written in there. So if uh, an applicant comes in and says they're going to do this, they want to do it, they're willing to do it, um, then staff can work with them to allow um, more development on the site. And the reason we want to do that is we want to use the market rate development to offset the provision of the local employee units for the affordable housing. Um, so it pencils out essentially um, in the end. And the green box represents one unit among many could be held aside. It doesn't have to be the entire development. In fact, most communities do it on a sliding scale. So, you know, between one to five units or like 10% of the development. So not a ton, actually. Um, we have some small lot development standards in there. Um, those units, not surprisingly, I believe we're from Portland. They're fun and funky. Um, we could do fun and funky also. Um, the goal, though, is to allow smaller units on smaller lots. That is another way to get to more affordable housing. Explain to me, <laughs> jumping ahead, sure. why, why would you opt for that versus just change the zoning on those few lots? So sometimes um, I think you're going to have a lot that's within a bigger zone district. Um, someone is going to immediately jump to the spot zoning argument. Um, it may not um, be the same lot sizes as the development around it. And we didn't want to have a rezoning process hold up the development. So we were trying to come up with a way to use this, it could be an entire development of small lots, but it could also be, you know, a parcel that wasn't going to work well for other things where you could slide in one or two smaller ones. So it, it could be a mix and match um, sort of development process or layout. Okay. Did that answer your question? It did. No. Uh, so two detached dwellings on a single lot. Um, I remember uh, talking about this early in the project. The city has allowed some of these to happen. Um, I think that the second unit was um, deed restricted affordable. Yes. Correct. Or at least affordable to start with. And the uh, lots, it's permanently affordable. Permanently affordable. Um, so this is not necessarily, it's not drafted as permanently affordable, um, but we can certainly make it go that way. Um, but we wanted to get the regulations in place that say you can do this, and it could be through a variety of different sizes of units. It is not uh, not an accessory dwelling unit. It is two independent units. They go into different ownership. Um, I think the one funky restriction on here is you almost have to be a corner lot or an alley lot. Exactly. You need that second access for the second unit, yep. Is the lot itself split into two separate lots so it's fee simple ownership or does this have to be done as a condo association? How do you have two different ownerships there? Yeah, um, it, it's set up so you can split it, but um, you don't have to and um, you could condo it. Um, I'm not sure why you'd have to condo it. The one unit per lot is kind of a zoning thing that we made up. Um, so there are other communities that do two units per lot or three units per lot, and they say do it with a site plan, and we're good to go. But you wouldn't be able to take ownership of it. Wouldn't be able to take ownership of the second one, so it would be a permanent rental at that point in time. Mm -hmm. So if we want to make it so you can take ownership, you can condo it. Makes it seem Thank you. to an ADU if you can't take ownership of it. So also, I think the one unit per lot was to make sure that 
didn't have public access to both. Yeah, and so this, this is going to take that requirement forward. So if if you want to put that house on the back half of your lot and there's no alley access or no side road access, then that's probably going to be an ADU, not a second unit on the okay. lot. I mean, then zero lot line development we carried forward from the current regulations. Um, it um, allows um, you to scoot the home over um, potentially on a smaller lot. So it feels like you have at least more private, private space on one side. That's been around for some time. Okay, so then we added, um, we updated, we added, we pulled in um, residential design standards, pretty modest residential design standards. They definitely don't um, go all in the way you would do with a plan unit development or even the way you would do with neighborhood design standards. This is meant more to get at um, just some of the basics. Um, and I think if I remember correctly, we start with um, three unit attached. We don't do single family or duplex along. Oh, and I'm sorry, I didn't put a slide up there, but Tiny Home Village, which will come up at some point this evening, I'm sure. Um, tiny Home Village, a cottage court can also be a tiny home village if somebody wants to do that. Okay, so the residential design standards, um, new residential attached only. So it does apply to duplex and townhomes um, or a single structure multi-unit, so um, that's apartments. Doesn't apply to the single family detached. Um, so what we focused on in residential um, for plan implementation is looking at a mix of dwelling units, so a mix of unit types required instead of having um, the more um, homogeneous neighborhoods, um, getting something um, with some mix of unit types going there. Um, some basic uh, building orientation, uh, not super complex, um, parking lot location, and then um, a little bit about distinguishing the architectural variety um, when you're doing attached um, units or multi-unit developments. Um, we've got a little bit in here about uh, garage orientation and design, um, which I think coming back off of the, um, at least the preliminary results of the meeting in a box, we may want to step away from. It tends to cause arguments that it may not be worth. Um, some more sustainability standards, sustainable standards related to materials, and then some sustainable project design standards. We have the residential infill standards. Um, the goal of those standards is to reflect um, infill on lots that have been um, challenging um, to develop, and I'm sorry, it's also residential infill and redevelopment standards. So infill is a predominantly undeveloped lot and redevelopment is probably scraping something off the lot. And we gave you some definitions on page 214. Um, so this is um, doing something within a, an existing um, neighborhood setting. Uh, so we're trying to do a little more to match character um, and make sure that the infill um, fits. Not, not too much though, just a little bit. And then uh, finally, mixed use and not residential and non-residential. We pulled a lot of that forward from the um, current community design manual and then did updates um, to reflect the way that design standards are written currently. Let's go to the next one. So within the um, design standards and guidelines, as I went through just a minute ago, so we have the mix of dwelling types or the site planning, 
um, and we have the building and something, something, the building and design standards. And um, sorry, like there's no winning. Um, so just leave it up there. You're cool. Um, so this is an example of some of our thought process. So this is um, a piece uh, from um, some work done by Opticos Consulting out of San Francisco. They do a lot of form-based codes and missing middle housing work. And this is from their missing middle site, missingmiddlehousing.com. And so we can see here that we have a, a mix of um, units working um, within a neighborhood setting. And one of the conversations that we've had as a group is how do we get people to picture what could happen? And how do we get them to not picture the worst thing that could happen? And so um, what we're thinking about in these standards is, um, you know, a little bit of the aesthetics and a lot of the site planning and the mix and how they come together. Let's go to the next slide. Is, so, that, is that consistent with what we see in uh, Tennessee, Kentucky, streets close to mass, different kinds of so from single family to to a multifamily apartment buildings all in the same space. Is that, yeah. is that what we're looking at? Okay. Well, I look at that. That's what I think. I, that's Kentucky. <laughs> I have some of that where I live. Yeah, exactly. And not, you know, not all suburban neighborhoods would work like that, but there, there are equivalencies. And so part of taking this out to the public is going to be working with more images and helping them see that, you know, in Lawrence, we've got a lot of different stuff going on. Next slide. So we added um, some sustainable, some pretty modest sustainable project requirements to the site and structure standards. And we want to talk about what more do we want to do here that is not covered by building code or energy code, because those are outside of our purview on this project. Um, so we have some requirements for um, when, you know, like when dumpster sites go in, they need to uh, account for um, trash and composting and recycling. Um, that um, applicants should be thinking about how we minimize heat island effect and um, that we should be looking at how we can do some on-site food production, uh, particularly mixed foods um, and multi-pairs. Um, so we've got kind of that space AG image over there of a building that also has a forest in it. Um, that's going up in Denver right now. Um, and it looks like a cave at the moment, but I'll bring you guys a picture when it's done. We'll see how that goes. But we're, we're thinking about that. How do, how do we bring the green in? Because that's one of the um, most frequent comments that we've gotten from members of this committee and others um, about what's happening as the city looks at more density. We've also um, got roughed out some preliminary standards for adaptive reuse in non-historic areas. Um, we're going to um, keep drafting on this one. Adaptive reuse is reusing a structure. It could be completely reusing the structure. It could be reusing parts of the structure. It is the greenest um, construction method that we have. The building's already there. Um, but not all buildings can be reused. So we're thinking about where that goes. So in terms of sustainability and site structure, um, this is sort of where we're starting. Next one. So then we have Article 10, Mobility and Connectivity. Um, so we have some basic requirements for vehicular, pedestrian, and bike circulation um, for all developments that require site So we want them to come in and we want to see how are you moving people around if you're not showing that currently. Um, we brought in vehicular circulation requirements from the community design manual and um, added new standards for bike access and circulation. Next. So we'll pull this map up. Um, so 
as we're thinking about connections, um, this is um, this tells a little story about missing and existing sidewalks in Lawrence, and um, it is not necessarily the job of the development community to fix this. Um, that when we do infrastructure requirements like bike connections or pedestrian connections, um, we are limited um, by cost and law um, in what we can ask an applicant to do for good reason. Um, but if we understand how we put pedestrian and bicycle infrastructure in place, um, we move further down the road of making the community um, more walkable, more bicycleable, um, allowing people to get around in ways that are alternatives to a car, even um, you know e-bikes. Um, for some people, are more um, attainable and um, easier to get around the community. So this is some of the thought process we're having in this um, connectivity chapter. So um, in parking and loading, I was completely joking earlier, we made a big change. Um, so if, um, if it wasn't immediately apparent to you, we switched, um, we switched out the regulations. There are now minimum parking requirements for residential uses the way it is now. There are maximum parking requirements for residential and non-residential uses. So we are um, doing the thought experiment of what happens if we remove the minimum parking requirement for non-residential construction. It takes up a substantial amount of a site. It's expensive. Um, so how does this work? So regulate, uh, residential parking is provided, correct me if I'm doing this wrong, um, in roughly the same amount as currently required. Maybe, maybe reduce a little bit, but residential, there's not a ton of wiggle room to take spaces out. Um, Non-residential uses don't have a minimum, they have a maximum. And so parking can still be provided. Nobody is stopping development from providing parking. They can provide parking, but it's up to the developer to determine how much parking the market might require. We may not end up here. I just want to be the first one to say that. <laughs> but it's it's a way to kind of shift this conversation from should we take away a few parking spaces here and a few parking spaces there to what's going to happen if we don't make anyone provide parking spaces? Are they going to provide parking spaces? How's this going to work? Um, so we did not invent this for Lawrence. Can you remember off the top of your head a couple, three of the communities you looked at when you were looking at this? Um, other ones that have done this are Bloomington. Um, I believe Overland Park is looking at it. Just looking at it right yeah. Um, some others along the Pacific Northwest, Portland only has maximums. Um, certain areas around Colorado, Longmont, Colorado also has a maximum only. So yeah, it's gaining traction. So, so this is this is to um, essentially juice this conversation, so we can talk about parking and what parking means in the whole scheme of things. Yep. Um, it seems. Interesting to say Thank what you. parking do you need, but um, sites are so different depending on whether they're in a residential area or whether they're in a commercial area. Um, Polinaria is an example of a restaurant that um, fills up the street on New Jersey, right? Um, when when they're, they're open. Yep. Um, and that may be okay because it's only Wednesday to Sunday and it's evenings. But what do you do when um, there's that difference? I mean, you know, people would probably 
still provide parking if they're on West Iowa or, um, you know, in a commercial area. But is it okay to say you don't have to have parking and you can use on-street parking in front of residences? To... Right, and I think so. I think and so how do you... How do you... Taking this conversation where it's going to go. Okay. Um, but instead of ending it backwards incrementally, we flipped it and then we'll inch it forward. So then we'll have this conversation, you know, is this really a downtown thing? Um, or is it, you know, just these commercial areas? Or is it where we really want to see infill and redevelopment? Um, so our anticipated outcome is we're going to carve out some of the residential neighborhoods and say, no, you still have a parking minimum um, because of the impact that you're going to have on the area. Um, and that can be something as a group um, that we start thinking, through. you know, where is this really not appropriate? Um, but we thought we'd start with blank slate and then move it forward that way. So thank you. Why not the same on residential parking? Why not the same on residential parking? Um, well, here, why not the same on residential parking? Because we've done a few rounds of the duplex parking impact on the neighborhood um, and the fact that um, you've got that big university up on the hill. Um, and I know they do their own thing, but a lot of them come live in the apartments off campus. Um, if we want to be really uh, provocative, we can do away with parking. Um, we, we can't think of a city the size of Lawrence that has, but I haven't looked at the Strong Towns map recently. So if you want to put it out there all zeroed out and see what happens, we're up for it. Is a rate of scale like single family duplex can have no requirement and you have a percentage requirement as you get higher up in the number of units or if you're a congregate living type use, you might have to provide 45% or 50% of dwelling units. Have you seen that? Yeah, you pretty much any way you can imagine doing parking, we've seen someone do parking mm -hmm. that way. Um, so if we, if we zero it out and um, that will bring a lot of people into the project, I can assure you of that. <laughs> I was asking the question, why, why not be provocative and that's the question. see where it goes yeah. versus saying we're not changing parking and so not having anyone. Okay, maybe it's a dumb question, but if you zero parking out, where where do people park? Parking will still get built because yeah. houses won't sell without parking and right, spaces won't lease. Right, so doesn't that force then cold days, rainy days, parking into the areas where parking exists, where it's kind of normalized for its own self? Um, so do you, are you saying that you're thinking like in some new development, developers are going to not do parking and then... Um, that's what I thought I understood you to say. So yeah, no, no. De questions. Developers are going to do parking. Yeah. I'm sorry, Phil, can I put you on the spot? Are developers going to do parking? Sure. Absolutely. If you want to fill up your apartment complex, you're going to have enough parking for it, regardless of what the city says. It's just not required. It's not a code. And there won't be trade-offs made between... I'm just going to make something up here in the Orient neighborhood. You're redeveloping something. You've only got so much space for parking. You think the rest of them will park on the street sure. in and out through the neighborhood. You know, um, yeah, uh, duplexes would be problematic because you have a duplex and a two-car garage. That means you get four cars, two in the garage. Of course, nobody parks in the garage, right? So two there, but it's got three-bedroom or four-bedroom on it. So you get four people living there. So two people automatically have to park on the street. Um, you know, but if we fight that right now, anyway, you know, the one that immediately comes to mind 
is the uh, Tridel sorority, right? <laughs> you know, uh, they, they didn't want to provide the parking for theirs. And, and, and had we left it up to their desires, they wouldn't have. And, what was their thought? What was <laughs> well, property. And, and, and all the girls parked on the street right now. Okay. Because it was, I mean, the old house was, you know, 50 years old. So probably don't want to augur into it really deep right now. No, no but I, I'm also thinking in, you know, I mean, you know, in a, in a in a brand new neighborhood, I mean, if you're doing a mixed use of types, you know, and you have a, I mean, could a developer say, this house, which is right there at the, you know, near the parking line and, you know, on the bike path. Hey, well, I'll build that house without any parking. I'm going to sell it to someone who has an e-bike. You know, that's what I want to do. And you know, mean, fit that need there. Fit that need. If someone wants to try to build that house, do we want to say you can't do that? You can't build a house that doesn't have a garage? And I mean, no, I, again, I'm not, Mossy's looking at me. I'm not saying in... <laughs> Parking parking and garage are different. Well, yeah. Yeah. I mean, having parking doesn't mean you have a garage. That's what I was looking at. Well, that too. I mean, I think that too. I mean, do in the driveway without your bumper sticking into the street. So you got one or the other. So again, that's the only thing I'm asking is, I mean, I could see, I mean, I don't, I mean, in the, in the, in the not too distant future, I mean, as e-bikes get better and, you know, people do stuff, they, I mean, I and if you have a good network, you could see someone saying, hey, I want a house that doesn't, you know, I mean, and for us to say you just can't do it, you just, I mean, that, I, mean I, I think it's worth at least asking a new development, not necessarily. It can lower the cost. You know. Um, but, the you know, the crazy one is, is, you know, I mean, there's parking stalls at Target and Walmart that have never been parked in. Exactly. So that's the other one. I think that's a, that's, that's a maximum thing. I think we want to change that. And by the way, I think we want this code to, as a side note on that, you know, for someone who owns whatever, the Walmart who owns you know, there's a shopping center to say, hey, this code now lets me go build something in that empty parking lot that I used to, you know, I'm not, I'm, all those spaces. yeah, I don't have to have those. I, can, I won't be non-conforming if I build something out there. Anyway, I just throw that out there. I'm, I'm again, I, I, I guess I would rather be a little bit evocative and see what people, I think I would too. I mean, at least see yep. um, what people would say about that. Again, <laughs> making sure they understand that maybe around the university and established neighborhoods. Again, we don't want to necessarily, but that's different than new residential neighborhoods. That could be what we use our next round of surveying for. So, okay, we have to restrict and require some parking. Where do you think it should go? So, one thing I think would be interesting about that is to see if there were any on street parking, because we've developed some clusters where the driveways are so close that there really isn't much on-street parking for a neighborhood. So if you don't have a driveway, you don't have a place, you may not have need a car, but the person who's showing up to fix your plumbing may. And so I think those two things might go together, that, that you need a 
plan that will have some on-street parking if you don't have any off-street parking. Because then at least you yeah. can have people come visit or the streets are wide enough to have both. Yeah. yeah. So I'm with you there. No, I, I can see that for sure. Yeah, some of those neighborhoods we have so many driveways, there's no place to park on the street because you'd be blocking the driveway. Right. So so I think we need to make sure that that goes together and we're not saying, oh, you don't need any parking and there's no parking on the street either. I'm with you. So I'd rather push it a little bit and see what <laughs> Yeah, we can we can push it. that everybody's reading this with the caveat. Yeah. Anybody else want to weigh in on well, You can push back too. <laughs> Also push for being slightly more provocative, especially because that would be totally in line with what happened in module one, where essentially we got rid of exclusive single family zoning, which is provocative. So I think we haven't provoked anybody yet. Yeah, exactly. Right. <laughs> so far, so good. Right? With big box and company parking, we pay smaller fees mm -hmm. based on parking. So just be aware. I I want to see it minimal, but it's going to affect stormwater and fees. Okay, certainly we're not floating our entire stormwater program on target over parking. Maybe we get a chance to talk to them tomorrow so we can ask. Companies are paying a good share based on their parking. So you're saying that some companies might say, hey, make, give me a small parking lot because I don't want to pay my stormwater fees. I'm going to think they're going to go for the customers instead of saving the stormwater fee. Really? You may may have a, a service industry that you don't have customers yeah. coming into your park. Okay, so then why do you need parking lot? You still there's, there's still rules that have they were required when it was built. They were talking about having a maximum instead of a minimum. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And then you would get to decide. Mm -hmm. And hopefully, whoever bought your property next. Wouldn't it would be nice if we'd all agree to just stay the same age, <laughs> have the same number of yeah. kids in the house, um, <laughs> you know, not change, then we could design this to fit. You had me at stay the same age. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so we'll rewrite this um, to do a maximum for everything, um, but we'll add in um, some sort of exception uh, for places where there's no on-street parking. So we'll have to figure out what a measurement for no on-street parking is, like driveways within a certain distance of each other. <laughs> Not no on-street parking just because it's already parked up. It has to be like, there's literally right. no space there. Okay. I should probably clarify my support. I would support taking away minimums, but I don't know if I'm quite ready to put maximums on because I feel like that will get the pitchforks and torches out. Um, if you start to say like, you can only have two spaces for your your cars and your lot, people are like, what? What, do you, what gives you the right? You know, I, I think once you start infringing on people's castles, you start to get much angrier people. So, well, yeah, I agree. Not as maximum residential. I agree with that. Yeah, I'm okay with maximum for commercial stuff. So for residential, so for residential, we don't want a parking requirement period. Is that where we want to start? Yeah, I think so. I mean, it sounds kind of loosey goosey, but I mean, you're halfway there anyway, right? Yeah. That does follow some of the models we model this off. Like. Okay. Yeah. yeah, I feel like if I remember correctly, the patron saint of parking, Don Shoup, I don't think he actually recommends max parking requirements. I think he just recommends getting rid of minimum, unless he's changed his tune since 2005. It's, well, he's one voice in the crowd, right? Yeah. And he's, he's a good voice in Pretty the crowd, voice, but yeah. we're, we're, we're trying to balance a bunch of different things here. Yeah, the maximum, I think it's cool. But. Yeah, okay. Okay, so it's going to be... We like blah, blah. 
you're zero, so you're zeroing out residential parking requirements. That's for a few months until we have everything. Yeah, I just want to make sure I understand where, where you're going. Okay. You want to schedule yeah. your vacation for now? <laughs> okay, so I don't answer the phone. So if you zero it out, then that would work for redevelopment, right? So I'm talking about the Orient neighborhood. So if you say you don't need any parking requirements, can everybody redevelop to a standard that um, means that that there isn't enough parking even for the people who are there? Um, but I live on the block that doesn't have an alley. Okay, we on street parking. We're very lucky. We are the only house on the on that side of the block that has a garage. Everybody else is dependent on on street parking. If you say people can redevelop, um, right now, I can't have book club except um, in the summer or Christmas vacation because. Because they're and and the city is taking away the parking in front of our house. So let's um let's think about that for a second, Marcy, because okay. we probably if if we want to think about Oriad or any of the older traditional neighborhoods with redevelopment, we probably want to think about the scale of what the existing could be replaced by, not necessarily the parking as our driving factor, right? What we really care about is what can go in. For redevelopment. Mm -hmm. So what we might want to say is, you know, you can only replace single family with single family, or you can only replace single family with a duplex max, um, instead of letting the parking be the thing that that leads. Well, in there. we don't have much single family anymore. Okay. I mean, so that's, that's not where we are at. We're at, you can have seven units per lot. But I guess when I made the statement, I was thinking more about new development versus redevelopment. And we have, yeah, we have done parking that has has a new development, has these standards, and redevelopment could go in our exception column. You cannot that's, that's, make that's, an existing situation unlivable. That's what I was thinking. Okay. Okay. We might get more provocative later, but I think. So okay. summarize that one more time. You're, you're you're going to split out redevelopment from new development. Yeah. With respect to parking standards. Respect to parking residential standards. parking standards. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So new development will have requirements. Um, redevelopment, we will have to come up with something. Um, redevelopment will probably live pretty close to the current parking requirements because that's what it was developed, what the most of the neighborhoods were developed to or something along those lines. And, and, and the sections of redevelopment that you've put out there now, I mean, <laughs> you, the setback should be the same. You, you, don't want, you, know, you don't want whatever you're redeveloping to stick out like a sore thumb. No. Right. And so same thing. I mean, you know, I mean, I don't think we want, you know, house with a driveway, house with a driveway, you know. Triplex with no driveway, you know, house with a driveway. I mean, I so in the same way that I think, I think it's not really a way of saying what I was trying yeah, to say. You, you want to drive it by the structure, yeah. not by the parking. Exactly. Um, and and if we leave the redevelopment structure types in the more traditional neighborhoods to, if they're not single family to whatever's there to get a picture of what's there. I feel like I am like, 
I know. I'm so sorry. I don't think we're going to end up here, Marcy, but we're going to start. It's, it's fine to have this conversation, but people need to realize what happens when they set standards. And so one of the things that I'm concerned about is, I, you know, we all want mixed use development. And I and it can be exciting. And I live in the Orient neighborhood and have lived there for a long time, right? So it's not like I'm against other things going on. But um, I've also seen that you don't get mixed unit development by saying you can have seven units per lot. You get seven units per lot. And everybody over time, I mean, I have the little Orient plan with all the punches of the houses that have been torn down. And so we, you lose things. People, so how do you get mixed unit, mixed development um, and have, have that mix without everybody trying to get maximum? Maximum. It's frankly kind of hard to support that without the density you need to support a walkable neighborhood. There's a reason that grocery stores on a neighborhood scale don't exist anymore, partly because of the grocery industrial complex, more or less, but also because family sizes are smaller, density is lower. There are fewer people living in East Lawrence than there used to be back when family sizes were kind of huge. So there's not really the foot traffic that you can get to support. I think Orient's probably the closest that we have to actually a neighborhood that's getting close to foot traffic being able to support local businesses like Boyle's, right? There's opportunity for better than Bullwinkles. But we don't have a grocery store. You know. I think next thing you have a bar. <laughs> next thing you have a bar. Yeah. If I can have a 3-2 bar back, I'd take it. Okay, so. Yeah, three blocks from Dillon's. But... All right, so let's back up a second. We're what? You're three blocks from Dillon's, right? It's a 19th and Orient goes down to 15th. Four blocks. Well, the people on the corner are three blocks from Dillon's. Okay. Which is different from the... <laughs> So the thing that you've said a couple times now that I think might zoom into the concern is the amount of redevelopment that's allowed for a lot can be can be life changing for the Oriad neighborhood and for other older mm -hmm. traditional neighborhoods also it may not be life changing for something that's not built yet. So I think the question there that we need to come back to um, is. Are, are we going to look at this code and say where there is existing development um, that is in a certain pattern at a certain scale that seven units per lot may not be appropriate? So it, it's really about what we're allowing in the uses in the zone districts, and then the parking should trail that. So in, in East Lawrence is interesting because East Lawrence was duplex until it a lot of uh, north of ninth until it was rezoned single family in the 1980. And so all of a sudden you were seeing, I mean, um, you were seeing lots bought because you could get more money if you remade it a duplex instead of single family. But also that means that the property ownership is not, individuals, it's rental or landlords, you know? So all of you are, when you say you can have a duplex, you're telling a lot of people you may not get to own your own home. I think it's a little presumptuous. You can own a duplex and rent out the other half. And you can have duplex split across lines and each person own a half of it. Mm -hmm. I know people who do those. It's not that uncommon. 
just because there are rentals doesn't mean that we should prohibit all duplexes, right? It seems like just prohibiting housing type based on the fear of the worst case scenario, right? This is not the worst case scenario. This is what we saw happen. And I'm and I'm saying right. because because in a in a community that didn't have so much pressure for rental, I mean, we had a university that decided based on comments from the Chamber of Commerce in the 70s, we're not going to build any more student housing. And all of a sudden, that's put a great deal of pressure on the rest of the community. Um, and so it's not, I don't know, I'm just, I'm speaking from what I've seen over 50 years. Well, the other thing I would say is, you know, back to the point of housing types versus, you know, poking, you know, you know we, we all, and not that I'm, don't put this in the paper. I'm not, not suggesting this, but we're like one of the few um, university towns that don't have parking permits in all the neighborhoods around the in, in neighborhood, neighborhood off campus, off campus. campus. I mean, yeah. you could you could do a lot of this by taking the neighborhoods around the university and saying parking permit system. And you know, I mean, I was just at the University of Wyoming. And my daughter lives off campus now. Parking permit. There's only so many. She lives in the duplex, but there's only so many. That duplex only gets so many parking spots. They can have a lot of people live there, but they're only getting so many, you know, parking permits. Um, so there's other ways to address that, um, too. So again, not that it's going to be. Yeah. Well, no, we we. I mean, we're doing this the hard way. Yeah. Because parking permits would be way easier way to do this. Yes. I mean, that's my point. It's yeah. I mean, they're they're not fun. I live in a parking permit neighborhood. It's a pain. But I also have you know commercial that fronts my house and it keeps 80 employees from parking there and I feel super bad for them but not that bad because I get to park. <laughs> I think I think I by the hospital and the employees of the hospital use all of the uh Missouri Arkansas yeah. you know not not Michigan but Missouri Arkansas Alabama you know as unpermitted parking and save whatever it is, $30 a month or whatever they charge. I don't know. I don't happen to live on one of those streets where it's an issue, but it, it is in the neighborhood generally. So it's outside of university, <laughs> okay? Which comes back to your question on 220. What are the issues with duplex conversion? Because much of what you, you all seem to be talking about here centers on what you're going to do with duplex conversion for established neighborhoods, in, in my opinion. I was just gonna say, I like the idea of ADUs, I think more than duplexes. Um, it's the same density, but you have somebody who's kind of um, in charge of ownership um, rather than um, questionable. And, and when I drive through neighborhoods, um, you know, I'd like to see people who are taking care of their property. And if you're in a duplex, I mean, it, there's, how do you make it look like it's one place? What, you know, you know, I'm going to, I'm, I'm going to follow Nick on that one. Okay. We're still making assumptions about those people. And there are plenty of well-kept duplexes, I'm guessing. No, it's not kept. <laughs> it's, it, it doesn't, it, making it all like one unit is a preference. And then you get into the HOAs, which 
That's what I have. Yes. I think it. I that's fine. They're well kept. They're good people. Um, I when I was mayor, I lived in a duplex. <laughs> but um, you know, I also think it puts some strain on the people that are there and what happens within their yard and. Well, so let's do this. Let's okay. let's hold that conversation. I've captured it. And, and this is what we want to happen. As we go deeper into the code, all of a sudden you're like, wait, 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 back up, back up. There's this other thing going on here. And now I can see changes that you're making are going to make me really grumpy. Mm -hmm. So, okay. um, so I, I will start a list of, well, what about this questions? Um, and then when we get through module two, we're going to back up into module one and we're going to look at, okay, are we allowing uh, too much redevelopment to take place in some neighborhoods or are we not considering, you know, the impacts of these changes? So let's, I think we're going to move forward with uh, no parking requirement for residential with our two exceptions. So that is uh, parking where there's no, literally no on-street parking um, and something parking for redevelopment that is in keeping with the neighborhood. Um, and then max parking for, um, commercial and industrial uses. Okay. Okay. You guys are all going to hide your home phone numbers when we so post this, right? And what yeah. will be the max for commercial? <laughs> it depends on the use. It's, it's drafted according to the use table. So if you look at the screen, now we have the, both the tables, the recommended minimums and recommended maximums. It would go by the specific use, parking related to the use. Okay. Does Leah want to say something? Or is she just? Yes. I think she just dropped it. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Okay. <laughs> that was so disruptive. <laughs> Liz, do you mind if I go back to something? Yeah. Right? So I wasn't here in the 1970s. <laughs> So I don't know what happened of, you know, the blanket statement stating that because the chamber said something that university decided not to what, build, housing. build housing. So I, I don't, I mean, being an employee of the university, the chamber doesn't tell the university what to do and what not to do. They don't so, know. So, oh, so, so, the meeting. so I'm just saying just, you know, let's, it, I, I don't know if it's, it's fair to, to simply put all that onus, you know, on the chamber because the university is going to do what they want to do regardless. Well, the university wanted to get along with the chamber. Well, no, no, I mean, but, but what I'm saying is that this you is... you think that that happened? No, I think the mayor lived in the duplex and she <laughs> made her half. <laughs> I, just, I just want to, to, to make... I just want to state, state that a blanket statement like that may not be most helpful uh, for the situation. There was... A, I mean... Okay. At some point in time, the university talking. stopped building... But it wasn't housing because, on campus. But it wasn't because the chamber told them not. I, I can't. I can't believe that. Well, and regardless, whatever happened fifty years ago, we've got a problem now where we haven't right. been building enough housing for the last twenty years. Period. University yeah. housing, market rate housing, affordable housing, any of it. So, I mean, I don't know what happened fifty years ago any better than Derek does. But yeah, I don't know that it really matters today because the bottom line is we need more housing. Period. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Okay, got it. Let's move to the. <laughs> Sorry to delay this, no, but I just want to get that out. Mm -hmm. Okay. 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 I've got to hold on a big piece of conversation. Mm -hmm. We're being provocative. 
this, this is we're not really being super provocative. We're just we're out there <laughs> things. So let's see what happens. Um, so that means we're gonna um, the next couple slides. I think uh, will be not as relevant. Um, but let's go ahead and look at. It. So we did do some parking adjustments. Um, we're we going to pull them and put them off to the side. It would affect minimum parking. Um, you're allowed to reduce minimum parking um, where there's shared parking or offsite facilities or parking close to transit, senior housing, or on-street parking. So we'll just cut this stuff out and hold it, and we'll see where the conversation goes. Yeah. Is parking areas close to transit more or less? It's a reduction for vehicle parking. So we don't have people who are driving their cars to catch the transit. So, oh, so the way it would work is if you built residential next to oh, okay. transit, right. and it it can't just be like a little bitty bus stop. It really needs to be some form of transit. Okay. Um, so if we come back to the residential, we'll go explore these minimum residential. We'll explore these again. Um, we do have some EV um, charging station requirements. It's a preliminary um, requirement. So what's going to happen with EV charging is the next iteration of the um, energy efficiency code, energy code, um, will take up EV parking. So it won't need to be in zoning anymore. It will become part of the entire suite of building code regulations, and they will regulate um, how many spaces need to be EV and at what charging level. So we've got a placeholder in here. We know the community wants to see EV parking, um, but I think we're going to have to, um, in our meetings tomorrow, figure out when the city will adopt the next energy code and um, how that will play out over time. Not challenging that, but I'm, I find myself curious um, why this particular attribute would be something that we would regulate, require, and others we would let the market decide. Because the building code people decided to do it that way. So if, and I'm sorry, that was probably a little more sarcastic than it needs to be. Why would we put it in code? Um, we put it in code. I, I think your question is valid. What happens is when you put in that particular EV station that we're looking at in the picture and you've ripped up a parking lot to do it, it's super expensive. If you put in the conduit before you pave, it's very inexpensive. Um, so I think that there's a great policy discussion that is above my pay grade about why would we even do that. Um, if we decide it goes in code, it's always better to give people the heads up so they can do the least expensive approach to it. I'm not pushing back on having them. I'm just, you know, just it's curious about yeah. why one instead of the other. Yeah. I've had several out of town pre application meetings for out of town developers who, ex who expect that we have a local EV charging percentage. It's the way of the world. It's the right direction. It is, particularly with the three, um, with the American car manufacturers all switching over. The other thing is um, not necessarily in a commercial setting, but in um, a multifamily in an apartment setting. There's an equity issue here um, that is a place where tenants I sort of have the least say over what happens. And as we see people driving more electric vehicles, um, we want them to be able to charge at home um, overnight so they're not pulling off the grid in the daytime. 
Um, and so if we do nothing else, we may want to talk about requiring some minimum um, amount of charging in multifamily development. Yeah, but I, I, I still agree with Gary's first premise that it, it's it's market driven. Okay, I mean, if I want, you know, if, if more and more people are driving electric vehicles and I want my apartment complex to be very attractive to those people and pay the kind of rents they are, then I'm going to go in there and I'm going to put in the charging stations and, and the people that don't do that are not going to get, you know, so it's totally market driven. The apartments that are less expensive and those people still have electric cars. That's, that's kind of like the donut hole that. Yeah. But I don't buy, I don't buy the argument that it's hugely expensive to come back in later, put an EV charging station. No, it's, I mean, I mean that's not a thousand dollars more, but you would be surprised how vociferously people will argue with us over those few thousand dollars. Mm -hmm. I mean, the same people that will also argue with us that bike lockers are too expensive. Yeah, but, but I mean, that doesn't help the argument that, I mean, we've got, we've just agreed that we're going to allow parking as a whole to be market driven. And then, and then this one little piece you're going to take out and not be, I mean, you, you, what's our philosophy? Is it one or the other? Well, the thing is, it's going to be out of all of our hands the minute the city adopts the new energy code. It's going to happen. So it, I I don't feel like I have a dog in this fight. I, you guys have a, it's a policy issue. Um, if we don't want to say anything about it in this code, we're going to hear about it from the community. Mm -hmm. um, but, you know, we can say that's going to be fixed in a few years or however, whenever that code gets adopted. From a policy perspective, it makes sense to have a requirement. I, I get that. My question was really about using that as an example of when do we decide right. market versus requirement. Um, it has me wondering, though, um, I think tangential, um, how about uh, requirements around uh, solar energy or other forms of energy production? We have not in this draft required it. Um, I think the one thing that we might have done, and I can't remember off the top of my head, is do some solar orientation language. So we do have um, yeah. One yeah. comment in there. Hiring a structure to, in some circumstances, to be oriented. So to, um, not necessarily oriented. oriented. Um, so that you can take advantage of um, east-west sunshine. Is the question about how prominent that would be in our code? Is that off the table at this late stage? I bring it up because there's you know, we're in the middle of uh, discussions on wind energy, commercial wind energy, and solar projects coming. And uh, the, the comment that's made regularly is, you know, this all is going to end up impacting rural. What's urban's uh, contribution? Uh, the urban areas, what's driving the, the, the demand for energy? What are you doing uh, to contribute? And if we don't have some of that thinking and what we're doing is when you write this code, I, I really think we're missing an opportunity that might not come around again for a dozen years. So we will, we will take the group's lead. Where do you guys- I make one more comment about that. There was a, under your uh, sustainable resilient design PD, there, there were some, some allusions, if that's the correct term, to energy efficiency criterion and so forth and so on. And in my comments that I wrote back to you all, I, I made the point that perhaps we also ought to be considering, you know, charging stations as part of the criterion in that sustainable environmental PD or whatever you all are calling it. Uh, 
because I, I think that in order to qualify for that, we have to meet community expectations, which include solar canopies over parking, I think, okay, and the, the availability of charging stations. If you're going to get a sustainable, resilient design PD, then you should beat those sorts of requirements, in, in my opinion. I don't know where you fit in the spectrum of enabling to requiring, but something you know, that at least recognizes that that need. Well, yeah. Well, well, the PD is, I mean, that's a voluntary thing. If you want to go for a PD, you know, you, you need to, yeah. uh, to, to, to meet these criteria. So then I think that where Gary is, or is where are we going in terms of uh, voluntary renewable energy? Where are we going in terms of mandatory renewable energy? Is that where you were going with that? Or what are you um, thinking? Um, I'm thinking that, and I'm not sure I know exactly what the solution is again. I don't know where on the spectrum it falls. Right. Um, I'm, I'm not a giant fan of requiring okay. you know, something for everyone, okay. but I, I'm absolutely a fan of thinking about this from at least enabling. Like you made the comment, it's way cheaper to run conduit as your building than it is to try to tear up a parking lot and install it. We have that thought that we want to enable, even if and if policy goes to requirement later on. How do we enable that? What should we be thinking about and talking about right now that allows solar on every single rooftop, solar across everything, a bit of ground? Um, for new development. You'd have to change the um, Kansas statutes because um, right now, I mean, the other thing that happens is distributed energy is great, but it's much more difficult to handle because, um, you know, every time you create energy, you have to be using it. So we have a restriction of like what two and a half percent? How many solar? Yeah, can be so you can have in Kansas, and that's so fine. And we're just kind of beginning place, right. right? It's an entry point in the conversation, and there's going to be a lot of restrictions. They'll get in our way, and they'll impose themselves. I don't think we necessarily need to impose them today. But the point, though, is if we have that as a mindset as we think about this, we're asking that question. Maybe that leads us someplace. Could we go somewhere in the middle and say it's expensive? Like, say, with the workforce housing, right? If you add one unit, you can do more stuff than you otherwise be allowed to. If you add solar panels, you can do more stuff. I, I love that, too. I'm not saying I, and I don't know where we are in the spectrum yeah. of it. I'm just offering that we think about that as we're going okay. Yeah. And I'm also not really a fan of requiring stuff that's driving up the cost. Yeah. Which is kind of exactly what California has been doing for years now. It's like, I'm I get the intentions, but we see the results. I'm not sure if we like the results, you know? We'll find our way. Yeah. Okay, so um, I just want to be weirdly specific here. Um, I was under the impression that you guys don't get enough solar. You can't produce enough solar energy oh, through the winter oh, to make this. Plenty There's plenty? Okay, I thought wind was more efficient in Kansas. Lots of sunlight. Okay, okay. All right, so we want to look at, so let's, um, for here, let's um, do this. Lots we want to look at, so accessory solar, so something, accessory wind and solar, just me, my lot, doing my thing. Um, and then something at a larger scale, maybe my business, um, maybe a couple, three lots, not necessarily a full-on district or utility size. And then there's we get to district energy or utility scale energy. Do we want to look at everything? Well, it's what Lar Marcy's saying. <laughs> You right. know, the state law is going to it limits a lot on solar on, on solar. solar does it limit on wind 
Well, it does to certain extent. So it's very little personal. But not, not right, right. And, and it, the whole subject of net metering and how it all fits within the management of it is evolving. Right. I get where it, I get that there's limitations today. That's great. But let's like we, we're smart. We can we can think about how we enable for uh, an environment that's going to be changing over time. Eric, can you do personal? But our state The regulations for that are such that it would not work unless you had a pretty darn big lot. So the setbacks for all practical purposes, purposes you can't do a personal wind in lots. Yeah. You'd have to have pretty darn so you can't you can't put wind and solar in that's my point. Yeah. It have pretty darn big wind is pretty ineffective from what I understand at this point in technology. Got it. I, 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 but I mean, you, you lumped the two together. Yeah. Okay. So we, we tend to write them separately because they use different technology. Um, so we can give the group a more expansive set of regulations to look at, and it's going to have to have language in it that says at such time as the legislature makes changes. <laughs> yeah. you, know, you can do it now. There's, there's, you can do it. there's the cap. We can capacity, but if you said everybody in Lawrence now has to have solar, I think We'd be reaching that. Well, of course. Okay. That's not that's not okay. what I'm saying. Yeah. I'm saying let's introduce that idea as we're thinking about having a part of the conversation. Wherever we can, incentives would be. <laughs> but yeah, that's what I was gonna say. We're we're gonna look at it as incentives. Okay. There's a so Evie took us down that road. Let's okay, come please. back. <laughs> come back. Yeah. Bicycle parking. Um, bicycle parking and design requirements. So we took these requirements from the Association of Pedestrian and Bicycle Professionals um, and updated the city's current um, uh, parking, bike parking and design requirements. We're um, getting to um, some improved bicycle infrastructure. I have to say, I cannot lift my bike up onto this <laughs> There is a... Uh... Within what we've drafted, there is no more than 50% can be on wall lifting up the bike. Thank you. I'm so going to go apply that to our building back in the <laughs> Yeah. Okay. Um, okay. So um, this, um, it, I want to say it shouldn't be a big deal, but um, it, there are short term and long term parking requirements. So we're looking at people who are there for the day and people who are there overnight. And um, uh, just from experience, we tend to get pushed back to long-term parking requirements. Um, so just letting you guys know it's in there. Okay. Put it out, see what happens. So what are the current requirements for short-term bicycle parking? Because I've heard lots of people complain that 20, we don't have enough. One bike space per 20 car spaces. Yeah, it differs, sorry, it differs by use, by use for yeah. both short and long. So each individual needs something different. Some have no long-term requirements. Some have no short-term. Some have no requirements at all. Okay. So we're trying to get consistent. If you need a short-term, you have a short-term. If you need a long-term, you have a long-term. If you need both, you got both. And then we talk about um, basic infrastructure requirements, basic parking requirements, more so than the um, just the... Um, bike rack that I remember from elementary school, which if you really want to pick up and throw in the back of your truck, you can. Um, something a little more sunk into the ground. So downtown has what requirements? So downtown has no parking requirements for most uses. That would include bike. 
And now, so that's okay. the reason I get lots of people complaining to me about that. Yeah. Because they want more by parking downtown. <laughs> so our question there would be, how would downtown respond to that? Which what we heard. Oh, the out. With parking, no one says anything. <laughs> <laughs> the, the problem was that the bike parking took up car parking. Oh, <laughs> Well, we took up retail space. We took up. Right. We, we took up green space. We took up a <laughs> couple of spots yeah, that, that occurred. We took the bike rails that are actually in parking spaces and it sort of blocks yeah. that can't yeah. already more off the top of my head. That, that was something that was done yeah. five, seven years ago at this point in time to have that conversation. I think there's also a few of the uh, light poles that have the the That's uh, control where mm -hmm. you can lock up to, to. But I don't think they're on every. So since it doesn't seem we're going to be getting too into the details after these after this presentation, there's a couple of things I want to kind of bring up now. It looks like we're kind of running out of time. Um, okay, so there's long-term parking requirements for bikes for eating and drinking establishments, amusement, retail. I'm a I'm one of the probably biggest bike advocates you'll meet in Lawrence, and I don't think long-term spikes are really necessary at these places. I mean, maybe for employees, maybe. But for the most part, the majority of people visiting these places are going to be short-term. Okay. So I feel like like in the spirit of trying to reduce development costs and make things easier, of all the places to provide long-term spaces, I don't know if that's really the one necessarily. Um, so a couple of other ones. There's a couple of prohibited type of bike racks that frankly work perfectly fine. Um, there are some really silly ones that are very artistic that are totally useless. But those aren't actually prohibited here. Um, <laughs> the ones that are prohibited, I was like, I've used these and they're totally fine. I've gotten bikes stolen from multiple kinds of stuff. So that's not, doesn't really change it. Okay, so we're going to prohibit artistic and useless. <laughs> <laughs> I also think that there are, so there's a whole definition or like a size requirement for cargo bicycle and bike trailers. I do have a cargo bike, but there's also like no requirement for these. So it's like, eh, we're defining them. But like, if you don't, if you don't require anybody to have them, in, may as well just be, you know. Like who cares uppers, right? You gotta be 10 feet long, like for the spaces you don't have to build. So who cares? Um, so like unless there are specific requirements for cargo bicycle parking, and I don't know if there really needs to be, honestly. Um, I don't think we really need that definition. I also think that the alternative bicycle parking could be allowed to be shared parking, like it is for cars, especially for long-term spaces, which are kind of annoying to build sometimes. But at this time it doesn't look like there is options for shared bicycle parking. So, look at that. Um, I'm go back to getting rid of long-term residential eating, drinking, amusement, and recreation, and retail and service uses. So, no I'm, reason for the long-term there is these are these are minimum wage jobs. Yeah, I think you're right. I think mean, in terms of that, and I wasn't thinking about that at the time. I was thinking of like the the more the, the higher proportion of people who miss the buildings. But yeah, so right. long-term over eight hours. Um. Also, if, I'm not going to like ticket people for this, but it's essentially if you need to store it and keep it for a period of time. When we move into long term, you're moving into safe storage for the bicycle. Um, well, that wouldn't be on a street anyway. It's not, it's not on a street. <laughs> yeah. So the employees close. They only need short term. Yeah. Well, eight hours. That's what I'm saying. No, no, no. We're not doing it by hours. So, so it's more an enclosed space. So. 
what you, what you need to think about for long-term is like, this is probably someone who's bike commuting and we want to give them a space to put their bike so they don't come out at the end of whatever their shift is to a soaking wet bike or a snowed over bike or a stolen bike. Because if that's our primary means of transportation, we want them to be able to keep it safe when they can't check on it. So like if you build a new Walmart, the Walmart should have a place for employees to be able to park their bikes inside while they're at work. Right now, you know, a Walmart doesn't build those. I'm just making that, using Walmart as an example. So yeah, if you're building something like that, they have some place where they can have long-term meaning it could be stored. Not just so, the guy who comes up to shop at Walmart. Right. Yeah. So because the shops at Walmart is gonna ride up, park his bike at the front on a U or something, go in, buy something, and go off. Yeah. That wouldn't be for them. So it might be better to put it into a parking garage instead of Downtown, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. downtown might be downtown. I think probably not at a Walmart, though. No, but I'm thinking if you're going to require long-term parking, we wouldn't require it at each business. You'd probably put it in a parking garage. Yeah, I mean, yeah, yeah. for like a downtown, that's what you see more often. Yes, I think for elsewhere it could be that shared idea that I was saying, where it's like, say, you have three smaller businesses right next to each other, so they all pull their resources. If anyone has a kind of underutilized parking lot, all right, I'll put like a little corral over here, and I'll pay into it. And then we can all meet our, right. our requirements, which is exactly what's allowed for uh, car parking as well, at least for the new code. Okay, we'll change it out to do the shared parking um, in, for commercial uses. So downtown could do all of their parking. Maybe they could convince the library to sell them some space on the top or whatever. Or mm -hmm. on top. But I do a joint comment about the long-term parking in other establishments. You guys are right. That makes sense. Okay. Okay. Um, let's finish this up. I think <laughs> questions for discussion. Actually, let's go. Let's flip down to the next. The uh, keep going, keep going. Because I was going to go through the whole thing. Keep going. Okay. Article eleven is um, subdivision and design improvements. Um, not a ton of change in here yet. Um, we have meetings tomorrow um, with um, various groups within MSO. Um, to talk about how the current regulations don't necessarily align um, with their specs and design standards and some of the things that need to come into the code that they're doing that it would be really beneficial to let applicants and developers know about. Um, and so again, what I said earlier, right now they're separated from the city county standards and we'll figure out um, how to make sense of that one down the road. So um, this, this is probably not going to get a whole lot of comment from the community. Most people um, apart from developers, don't spend a lot of time in the subdivision regulations. Um, but this could be where we do um, some additional stormwater work um, or, um, you know, some of the um, connectivity that we were talking about. If it comes in early in the design, it's a whole lot easier to do. Let's do the next slide. I think your drawing probably doesn't meet the code. <laughs> <laughs> I liked it. It was colorful. Okay, um, environmentally sensitive lands. So we've consolidated all the standards um, related to environmentally sensitive lands and uh, natural resources. Um, there are new stormwater and natural area protection standards that were drafted by MSO um, to mitigate the impacts of grading and drainage design that are in this draft. And, and also new steep slope and ridgeline um, development standards that were drafted by MSO. Um, and so they're to uh, prevent from erosion and landslides and preserve visually significant features. Um, and this will be some of what we're going um, over with them tomorrow and then probably a little bit more over the next few weeks. Landscaping and buffering. 
So in here, um, we took the current regulations and did some adjusting. Um, we introduced a minimum total landscaping requirement based on zoning district. We pulled street trees out of subdivisions and put them into landscaping. Um, we decreased some of the required buffer yards between development types um, and then made some adjustments to the landscaping materials to be more specific about what xeriscaping would be or what water-wise development would look like. Um, so not a ton of change, just a little uh, moving around and upgrading there. Can we... Can, yeah. Based on, on that comment, um, I, I don't disagree with street trees into the landscaping. However, when we do a subdivision design, we have to submit at that point in time uh, the street tree plan. Yeah. Okay, so if somebody is designing a subdivision, the one place they're going to be is in subdivision design. You're not going to be in the landscaping design. Right, so we can still say in subdivision submissions that you have to show your street trees. That doesn't change the, how we can do the applications. Thanks for pointing that out, though. I'll make sure that it gets carried forward. Um, next one. Okay, so we added the basic xeriscaping requirements. Um, uh, we pulled in stuff from the community design manual. If, if any of you works with the community design manual, it covers a lot of different stuff. Um, and so we've tried to kind of parse it and pull it into the right locations here. To be clear, our goal is to get rid of the community design manual. Yeah. It will become code. Um, and so we're looking at what's a shall and what's a should and how we do all that. Um, and then we also introduced some new basic irrigation standards um, for installing and operating systems um, looking at uh, water usage. So the low flow and automatic irrigation systems. Oops, I didn't finish cleaning this one up, I apologize. Um, so the city had um, an exterior lighting study done a few years ago, more than a few years ago. It's not that old actually. Remember this one. Probably older than I think it is off the top of my head. I it's been around for a little bit. A little bit. So we got a hold of that. We got a hold of the lighting requirements from the community design manual. Um, we typically draft exterior lighting standards. So we um, came up with a useful mashup of everything presented to us um, and um, tried to look at energy efficiency, tried to look at reasonable amounts of lighting, um, how it applies to different development types, and then added clarifications um, for like measuring light trespass um, when lights seem to be turned off at night um, and different standards for different types of uses. That's, no, that's it? Okay, so that's the overview of everything except um, measurements and definitions, which are what they say they are, measurements and definitions. Um, and we've been working to update those as we go. So um, we have another meeting set possibly for the night, or for the ninth, definitely. We didn't know how far we'd get tonight because it's so much content. Um, so we thought about possibly doing um, a meeting on December 7th, but we don't have to sort that out at this very moment. So we did dive in on some of it, but have some of you been holding comments? Is there anything we want to go back to um, before this goes public? Hi, Phil. Yes. You posed uh, a set of questions uh, one of them being uh, duplex conversion. Yeah. And you asked the question, uh, 
the general question, in what areas of the city would this type of conversion be achievable? Yep. And I'd, I'd really be delighted to hear some discussion on that because I think that in the near term, over the next five years in established neighborhoods, we're looking for densification. And if we move toward duplex forms, there's gonna be a lot of pushback in established neighborhoods with respect to how that process unfolds. So I, I'd like- Let's up and tell everybody, so duplex conversion is you have an existing single family residence and you internally convert it to a duplex. And so it it doesn't it's not necessarily tearing it down and putting a duplex up, and it's oh it's most usually going to be a top bottom duplex. What are you thinking over there? Well, I wasn't restricting it to top bottom. I I didn't get that out of what what you had put. Well, it could be side by side, but hang on, or front, or front to back, or right. whatever you know. As long as you meet existing setbacks and other base zoning district yeah. standards. Yeah. But you're saying. This, this when you use the term conversion, do you mean not tear down and rebuild, or is it both? In my head, it was not. But oh, did you guys see it as a tear down and rebuild? I'm hoping there are not too many tear downs. I took it as yeah. a, took it as just an internal conversion. Yeah. So, what parts down do I do? I think the internal conversion of single family to the duplex would be a one. I guess if it's not, it's not a teardown. I think it's, you know, I can see achievable in almost any neighborhood. Kind of depends on the size. Um, well, yeah. I mean, you know, if you're six hundred square feet, yeah, not going to happen. Um, but how about if you add six hundred to that and still meet the base zoning district requirements? It'd be a more comfortable house, I guess. Uh, no, you'll have you'll no, have double the number of people. Yeah. Okay, it'll still be six hundred square foot per family unit, whatever you want to call it. So it's what? Well, you said versus twelve hundred for two family units. You're going from a single family detached home, and I want to put six hundred feet square feet on the back of it. Okay. Okay, and and convert it. You know, two situations. Either I own it and live there, or I'm already renting it, and I want to double my ROI okay. so that I'm going to add 600 square feet onto the thing. <laughs> These are the questions that established neighborhoods face are going to face, and that, that need to be need some direction to uh, to to clarify them. As far as I'm concerned. So, and how are you getting access to both of those units? The front door for each unit shall be located on a separate building facade. Only one front door shall be visible from the public street from which the access, from which the residence is addressed. Oh, that was a little silly. It sounds like it's shameful to be a duplex. You know, like, don't show your second door, man. You got to put a ladder on the side. We don't want anybody around here knowing it's not a single family house. I think it's a little silly. And also, we had that exact situation come up. Um, where the historic preservation said, we don't want these to be on the same facade. So move it to the side. They moved it to the side. They're right next to each other. And now um, if you had a doormat in front of your house, it would be on top of the other person's doormat. So it didn't 
it didn't accomplish anything. It just made it worse. And when you come down the hill, you see those. You see both of those doors. Okay, so it also says a shared front entryway with interior doors to individual units is allowed. I think there's something about outdoor stairs aren't allowed though. I feel like I remember seeing that somewhere in outdoor staircases. I think I saw that on residential design standards that you couldn't do that. That's in a specific situation. I got to go back and look at that. Okay, I can take out the shame of a second door. <laughs> so we have we have a lot of houses in Lawrence that have two doors to one unit. That, yeah, exactly. I mean, I have one like a block away from me. It's very silly looking, but I bet it was a duplex at one point. <laughs> That's probably why it looks the way it does. But, so, Phil, you're concerned that we that there should be some neighborhoods that we shouldn't allow this in. Let, let's be clear about what we're per permitting by right versus what we're doing discretionary zoning on. Now, that's really what, I mean, if we're talking about duplex con converting single family detached homes into duplex, then let's, let's be clear about what we're gonna permit by right versus what's gonna require discretionary zoning. Okay. Right now, the way the way that that the principal use table is set up, okay, we're saying duplex by right, aren't we, Elizabeth? In R two. Yep. Yep. Okay. So you know what? Where are we going in Pinckney? We're concerned about where we're going. You know, uh, so that's that's why I I bring that that issue up, and and I, I you know this conversion would be allowed. Dwelling duplex, uh, R1, R2, R3, R4, M1, M2, M3. If you want the current zones, that's um, RS40, RS20, RS10, RS7, RS5, RS3, RM12, RM12D, RM15, RM24, RM32. So N1, RSO, everywhere. Every right. So the oh. the as I recall, said that again, it's either you could add, but you couldn't add more than the current square footage, right? Is there a limit on the square footage I'm you looking for that. in the conversion? There's no limit on the square footage. There's no no. Limit. There were there were just nine standards in there, but there's there's no no limit. No limitation. Depends what you what you. Yeah. Well, limitation I think that you're thinking of is in the um, second unit on the lot that does have those size limitations on it. Yeah. yeah. I was going to ask about the distinction between a split duplex and a detached CDU, and that sounds like that's it. An attached CDU still conforms to the ADU standards. It cannot be more than one third of the principal structural square footage. Whereas this, it can be as big as you want it. As long as you meet the other price, I can do As long as yeah. it's setbacks. Yeah. It's a small distinction, but it's a distinction. Mm -hmm. Okay. So what if I'm going to say, what if you have a house that's 650 square foot? I do. Well, yeah. And I do. Okay. And then it has a large lot with the driveway all the th through. To put an ADU on that, it has to be a third of that size <laughs> or 960 square feet, whichever is smaller. Who's going to okay. live in a 200 square foot apartment, right? Um, yeah. So you can have it up to 960 square feet or one third of the principal okay. dwelling, which right. means that very few people are going to build ADUs on small house big lots. No, but they could put it in a duplex. Yes, and that make a lot more sense. They can, they can add their house on Missouri that was 540 square feet. It's got about a 100-foot setback. I wanted to buy it and add a 1,000 square feet to the front of it and live in it. 
but by the time I could get my offer in, they'd already sold it. But that's a, that's a classic example of where you could put a duplex in uh, with the setup that we got right now. So let's talk about this. So this, so we have a few questions floating out here. <laughs> is this too expansive? What is the um, reality of it happening? Um, is is this something we want to allow? Right. Every everything in here. Question number one: Is this something the city wants to see? Um, and then, if it's something the city wants to see, is there a place where it should be allowed or shouldn't be allowed? Um, do we want to put it out there for feedback um, and hear what the community has to say, like we're going to do with the parking? I think sometimes if we want to hear what the community has to say, we should give them some choices instead of saying, just go read all this. Mm -hmm. Here this is, yeah. react to it and say you like it or you don't like it. Right. I think it might be better to say do that. we're yeah. talking about yeah. trying to add density. Do you like ADUs? Do you like duplexes by right? Um, you know, so what are some choices that we could then get some feedback from people instead of saying yes. I agree. Yes, I agree with that. I agree. I, like, tell me again what you said. That what's the difference between the converted duplex and the ADU? So, an attached ADU and a converted duplex both add new separate living quarters onto an existing structure. But the difference is that an ADU, an attached ADU, can only be a certain size, where a duplex can be as big as the principal unit or bigger. Hey, there's no there's no requirement as long as it meets the ADU is supposed to be accessory, right? So it's supposed to be smaller than the main living area. Um, so this says if if you have the space, if you have a unit, you can convert. And oddly enough, there are different requirements for that too. So a duplex can be non-owner occupied, but a unit with an ADU must be owner occupied, mm -hmm. which is weird because physically they're very similar, but functionally they cannot act in the exact okay, same way. You hold on to the owner occupied for right now. Thank right. you. Right. Okay. <laughs> road that we're not going to Promise you will come back to owner occupied. So, so, in answer to your question, I, I think it's highly likely people are going to take advantage of this wherever they can find them throughout Lawrence. Check like ROI. Yeah. The duplex is much it's easier to both ROI and there's a need for, for living spaces. And if you can, if people that are in the business of renting property, they find this, they can add more places. And so, I mean, that, that's satisfying indeed. The downside is, is that all the neighborhoods is where it's all going to happen. That's right. Except so if the, they have um, covenants. Except if they, if they have, have covenants. covenants. I had outlined an approach, and I don't know if you read it, but since I have the floor for a couple more minutes, I'm going to outline it again. My uh, my approach to duplex conversion is based on rental licensing and the notion that if you have an owner-occupied structure currently, okay, it should only be allowed. Shut him down in a second. Okay. It should only be okay. It should only be allowed to convert to a duplex by special use permit. And I'm not a big fan of discretionary zoning, but that's category one. Categories two and three are those duplex are those single family detached homes that already have a rental license. They're already being rented. Okay. You can convert those to duplexes. By, by right, you can because they're already rental. The neighborhood's already accustomed to that single family detached home being a rental home. 
But just to be devil's advocate, then we're treating owner-occupied. Absolutely. More rules. That's right. We're trying to incentivize and retain owner-occupancy. All, okay. <laughs> all you do if you own it is rent it out and change it. I mean, it doesn't it's not hard to go get a rental license. You just, I mean, so if you have a house, you can rent it to your kids. You can rent it to yourself. You go get a rental license and all of a sudden you meet that requirement. So it doesn't seem that you're really, yeah, it's too easy to get around. It may be. But you still, but you, you still have to, we're, ta we're talking about a process whereby you, you convert existing single family home into a detached unit. It isn't like you can just pass a piece of paper. Okay. You're actually doing something physical to the single family detached unit which requires a permit in order to do. But you're telling me it only requires a permit if it's owner-occupied, and I'm saying I can easily make it rental, and then I go, then I have the right. Well, but but in, in my schema, the right was that you had to be already on the rental registry at the time that the code was enacted. So have, bring that oh, up. no. <laughs> oh, it's completely foolish. I think, okay. I think Phil, if we're using um, rental um, status or owner occupancy status, which is, is, is easily changed, I agree, Marcy, with that. Um, what we want to come back to is, the, and I think this is where my question was, do we want to prohibit this in some neighborhoods? Is that what the urban conservation overlay district was meant for? Because it's not necessarily for historic neighborhoods. It's just for anybody who wants to conserve their urban, basically. That's how I understood it, at least. Because there is a historic conservation overlay, and urban conservation is not that. So if there is a way for uh, a well-connected internally and externally neighborhood to want to prohibit development, but without doing covenants, you see would be that. Tool. I don't think we want to do um, conservation overlay because that would potentially penalize a neighborhood that couldn't get themselves organized for to do conservation overlay. In what way would it penalize them? Well, I'm sorry. By subjecting them to the horrors of duplexes? <laughs> <laughs> no, I, so wait, isn't conservation overlay voluntary? Yep. Yeah. So, yeah. If you, so if you want to stop development in your place from being totally to the code and want to have your own special rules, it seems like that's kind of what it's for. Yeah, no, but it, I mean, if we think about neighborhoods with people that don't don't play in this process with us, then they're penalized by not understanding that that's in the code right. and that they can do it. And that's why I don't really favor having an urban conservation overlay district because it favors those who are politically connected and also who are very neighborly connected and therefore disadvantaging those who are not. Okay, so that I buy that. Um, maybe we kill conservation, kill the um, neighborhood conservation district, and try to figure out whether or not we want to use all these tools in all places. It could be in design guidelines even. I don't know. I mean, that's another one, unfortunately, that does favor more connected neighborhoods because the you unconnected know, ones don't have those mm -hmm. design guidelines. But you're not going to get those out of design guidelines. Those have, those have to be in implementing standards. What do you mean, like not being allowed to have duplexes? Because the well, Orient Nick, that's way too broad, man. Okay. I'm just giving other options. I mean... I think that if I want to make the community lose its mind, getting rid of design guidelines would be my best start. <laughs> <laughs> Not against that. Um, so, I mean, we can duplex conversion elsewhere. It doesn't well, have to live here. This seemed like a realistic location for it. 
with our questions are where do we want to go from here and do we think I guess let me back it up where do you what's your look like your well I was going to say I, I guess I had when I was thinking about the conclusions I think I think you should allow if you don't add on to the property I would say you can convert us you can convert anything to a to a duplex. I'm not. I, I'm. I want to be concerned. I mean, I, I think people should have the right, be it an ADU or be it, you know, to convert, you know, something to. I'm. I'm okay with that. You know, I, I think the bigger concern is adding a bunch, on. I mean, so I could see that being a different standard when you're adding. You know, I mean, again, maybe adding more than 200 square feet or something. I mean, you might mm -hmm. need to add something a little bit to put doorway in or something. Mm -hmm. But anything more than a, you know, a 10% addition, I could see that being different. Um, like you said, taking a 600 square foot house and putting 3,000 feet behind it in a duplex, in theory, could be different for a neighborhood. I don't know if there's a great correlation between square footage and well, density of population, though. I mean, I've had three people in a 650 square yeah, foot house no, no. and a neighbor with one person in a 2,000 square foot house. Like, does it really matter how much area? I mean... No, no, I agree with that. I mean, I mean not... But the, but the idea of... I guess I... This idea that... Um, adding on... Yeah. I think duplexes should be... I mean, I think we should have much more ability to add duplexes than under our current code. Um, than we have now. I'm a big fan of ADUs, but I guess I'm saying trying to react to the to the concern of of you know. To me, there's a distinction between when you're just converting an existing building versus you know converting a adding on to it. Um, that you're converting in the existing uh, building envelope, essentially. Yeah. That is very similar to an internal ADU. That's true. Same, same, same. So maybe we want to say, you know, there's a minimal amount of addition you can do 300 feet or something. We want something along those lines. Um, In the congregate living setting, you use 20%. But you couldn't expand congregate living facilities by more than 20%. I think that was the number, if I, if I recollect correctly. I think I'm kind of struggling to figure out what the metric of concern is here. So if we take an existing building envelope and make it now two units, assume, say you had a couple living in one, and now that couple is going to squeeze on one side, maybe a new couple is going to be on the other side. Two cars, possibly four cars, maybe more if they're enthusiasts. Um, if you spread that out and double the size of the envelope, it's still two units. Maybe it'll be families, but it's not likely going to be kids who are going to be driving. It might, but it's not, not likely, right? Like a pretty low chance. That you're going to get a you know a four adult person family, especially because our occupancy limits don't require that anyway. Don't allow that. So it's like they allow it in our neighborhood. Okay. You can have four. We've changed. Four. That. So yeah, we're, yeah. We're talking about changing that, and because I I think, and if I'm putting words in your mouth, stop me. But if we allow that that addition, that major addition, we make smaller units a target for redevelopment. Right, we essentially just put the target right on the house because that's what Phil was talking about. And that's my that's my concern. Yeah. Is that 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 you tend to incentivize 
conversion of owner modest owner occupied housing to yeah. rental housing in and neighborhoods without HOAs with it, when neighborhoods without HOAs so yeah. we're gentrifying yeah well yeah that's the that's the catch-all term for it I mean in some cases just like ADUs are also providing a degree of flexibility for an owner who's maybe aging and maybe the kids have left they want to move in smaller unit rent the bigger one Maybe they have boomerang kids, and they really don't want to share much more than a wall with them in the back. It's still an ADU, essentially, just a larger ADU. I mean, it's very, very similar. So, I mean, if if, if the concern is about making it hard for owner occupiers, kind of defeating the purpose of what an ADU does, which is make it easier for owners to make their house flexible over the ages, to make it work for them, and also to earn a little income on the side, um, saying that you don't have to be a non-owner-occupied landlord to get that certain income. We're conflating these two. Yeah, yeah, mostly, yeah, yeah. We have ADUs and duplexes, and the duplexes, I think, anticipate completely separate, um, if not ownership. At least there's no... Um, there's, there's no, like, okay, and then we're on the ownership. <laughs> Which you vowed to stay away from. Uh, um, I mean, I, I'm not a fan, and I, I think that there are courts that have overturned it um, because of, of, what? of the owner-occupied rule. Right. Um, so, uh, because I think that it keeps people out of the market. But um, the, I think, do we want to allow duplexes and do we want to allow ADUs is a similar conversation but the, do we want to allow the duplex conversion with adding on to the structure is a much bigger redevelopment conversation. The ADUs aren't going to attract that, in, that investment. This will attract investment. Yes. I mean, if the ADUs are not allowed to be owner occupied, sorry. If the ADUs must be owner occupied, the ADUs yes. are never going to be separated. There, there's, they are always supposed to be smaller. They are likely going to be in most cases, kept in the same ownership. But the duplexes, anyone who's building duplexes now could do a scrape and a replacement that they probably wouldn't buy a single family unit to scrape and add an ADU to. Why would you scrape it if you just had an ADU? I mean- You wouldn't. It's a more attractive investment to do the duplex. Absolutely. It's not an attractive investment to do an ADU. Especially if they're prohibited. I mean, non-owner-occupied ADUs are prohibited under our current code and under the post one, well, which is exactly what Oregon found out when they were finding that they weren't building a lot. Like, I wonder why. Oh, it's because we won't let non-owner-occupiers build these things and only owners are going to. And it turns out there wasn't a lot of uptake in that. So right. once they got rid of that requirement, they actually saw what they had wanted to in the beginning, which was building ADUs. Okay, so you want to talk about ADUs. I'm just talking in general. I think owner-occupied Owner occupancy rules are very limiting. And if we want to see missing middle housing. But we, we don't have an it. owner occupancy rule on the duplex thing. Sure. That's but another thing that makes it appealing. But it's weird that they're separate because they're otherwise so physically similar, right? It's, no, I think so. What it helps me is to think about the ADU as in the bubble of the house. It's okay. just like the dog house, which is where I would kick my kids on a bad day. But this is two houses. Right. Right? I mean, it's the way I envision it. Yeah. yeah. I think it. Duplexes, we got two equivalent units, mm -hmm. and the ADU is a smaller unit on the same lot. Mm -hmm. And if we got rid of the owner occupied part, I, I'm all in favor of getting rid of the owner occupied part, having an ADU. So you might have a small 
you know, rental unit in your back or something, which increases the housing, get rid of that owner occupied part, which now I'm starting to hear could be challenged at some point. But um, it's being challenged in the more conservative districts. Well, even, in, you know, in, but if the goal is to have more housing and to give people the opportunity to stay in their house and we want to keep more single family houses and duplexes, unless you have a large house and that you can divide up, which is not always working. Awesome. It's more common. You buy an old house. Somebody's let run down, tear it down and build a duplex. It might or be easier to help people stay in their home if they build a smaller house out back that could be a rental or something like as an ADU. I mean, they could agree with that. They could stay in their home if they divide their house too. I mean, if you were a family of six and I a family of two, you only need probably half the house, right? Same, same idea, right? It could be that the, the people in the main house move into the smaller, newer one and rent out the bigger one because they don't need that space anymore. I mean, there's lots of things that can happen. Our, our concern is that what we're going to see is people adding 800 square feet onto 1,000 square feet or 1,200 square foot dwelling and, and converting it from buying it from an owner and converting it to duplex rental. I know I know we need housing, but you also have to think about long-term, in, in my opinion, long-term health of the community requires higher levels of owner-occupied housing. Uh, and, you know, at, at the neighborhood level, it's a change that, that we, we don't necessarily, we're not necessarily in favor of. In our neighborhood, you know, I can't speak for others. So I'm going to read something that Jeff was probably thinking about, and you two might be thinking about also. So this is in the ADU requirements. Either the principal dwelling unit or the accessory dwelling unit must be occupied by one or more of the persons who is are the record owner of the properties. If at any time, neither the dwelling unit in a building that contains an accessory dwelling unit is the principal residence of one of the owners, um, then the property shall be considered a duplex. If a duplex is not permitted in the zoning district in which the property is located, which we just established is pretty much all of them, yeah. then the owner shall be subject to penalties. So we kind of effectively backdoor wiped out the owner occupancy requirement when we changed the use table. Yeah, yeah you did. So yeah. it's interesting that, that we've also now, yeah. now described uh, detached ADUs as duplexes. Wait, hang on. Rebecca, you got a question? No. Rebecca, that, I'm sorry. That Rebecca. That Rebecca. Oh, no, Rebecca's probably got wisdom for us. She probably does. I'm sorry. Okay. You're on. I, you guys hear me? Sorry, I'm in Branson, but I am paying attention to every detail. Um, my question is, we seem to keep going back to duplexes will create rental housing, and I really want to push back on that. I know our consultant has several times already. Um, I mean, to me, if we're concerned about affordable housing, duplexes allow you to sell both units and we absolutely can have owner occupancy and affordable units with duplex conversion. Um, so I, just again, we're jumping to, oh, this will be rental housing. And I think our his, historically that has been what we've seen, but prices are and interest rates have changed that dynamic where more and more townhomes and duplexes are the only entry-level point. So 
we can see people converting a unit into a duplex and and selling both halves um to individual owners or unit or individual owners and so i i'm okay. i'm not understanding why we're always going to this is going to wipe out ownership housing i actually think of it the opposite way and and you went to a very i think important and ambiguous thing there uh townhomes versus duplexes you know if we're, if we're talking about townhomes that are that are having a, a, a common wall you know and are individual parcels then that's the that's great entry level potential equity building ownership but but duplexes that aren't individual parcels and you know, it's more difficult for me to see home ownership under those. And I live in a duplex. Okay, so I, I can tell you. Can't you, if they're top, bottom, or front, back, can't you condo it? Yeah, so if there's yeah. one on 19th and high school, that is definitely that. Yeah. It's okay. two equal parts owners, and it's a single lot of land. So it definitely yeah. can be done. So because you haven't seen it, doesn't I, mean it's not here. It so hasn't been done historically. I, I agree. Right. But that is what we're trying to create more opportunities at different price points. And this is a huge way to do that. You no, know, I, I don't disagree with you, Rebecca. I, I'm just I'm concerned about some of the unintended consequences of, of what might be in the code with respect to to established neighborhoods. I, I, I agree with you. You and I are on the same page there, generally. Can I read Leah's comment for those who are with us? So for those who are on virtual, Leah said, it seems like a lot of this discussion is centering uh, implicit values on owner-occupied units, <laughs> contrary to explicit values of the code update for more affordability. If the concern about outside investors, perhaps we can think of solutions to that, to those, uh, as opposed to preventing more low and moderate housing types. So Leah, if you want to jump in and maybe speak more of that. What Rebecca said, basically. Yeah. 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 Thank you, Rebecca, for speaking up. I'm sorry. I'm actually putting on zombie makeup right now. So I'm going to say <laughs> off camera. <laughs> but um, it, yeah, it does seem like there's been a lot of focus of the discussion on these explicit, uh, uh, it, um, unstated implicit values of maintaining owner-occupied units, which is Rebecca stated is increasingly not accessible to many members of our community. And um, if the concern mm -hmm. is about outside investors coming in, buying a previously owner-occupied housing stock um, and making them less affordable for our community, then perhaps we can focus on that. But duplex housing is, is absolutely vital for, as somebody stated, for the missing middle. Um, for low mod households um, that uh, where home ownership is just not an option for them. And so I'm hoping, is, I appreciate you considering that as we move forward as not only how are we protecting those with the most access to power and privilege in our community, but those who are literally on the brink of homelessness and need, need affordable housing. We are at 610. I 
We have a zombie problem. But so we haven't solved anything for you. Oh, I'm sorry. So we have plan A and plan B on our end because we knew there was a lot. So we're planning on doing some outreach in November, but we can outreach on issues if you guys want to hold this draft and keep talking about it before we send it out. No? No, I mean, I, I, again, I think, I mean, I think you, again, kind of like you highlight for us, here it is. An option would be not to allow this. <laughs> you know, right. Like, right. Give us some feedback. Right. Here's the, you know, we have the ADU section. We have the conversion. Do you like one, other, all three? You know, I think leave, I think leave them in there, but 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 call them out as a discussion. And do board. it more visually and yeah. not making people read the whole draft. And that would be just through chapter twelve or through twelve, yeah. right? Um, that way we've covered. Yeah. What we've covered. Article 12. Yeah. I mean, you guys can make changes to the rest of it um, next time. But yeah, I think. But, but what you would release to the public would just be through Article 12. That's up to the group. Did we have changes in because landscaping and environmental? We have one? not covered that. There will be some discussion about Stolly Fan. We can put that out later. Which you're talking about what chapter? Beyond 12. So we can put nine. 10, 11, and 12 out, which is less, fewer number of pages. Um, and then we can do 13 um, after we come back in November. Or when we come back in November, not after we come back in November. So I'm, I would really like to see, you know, we're looking for increasing density. Possibilities are, you know, um, ADUs, conversion of duplex, allowing duplex in, you know, in any zoning, you know, here, here would be the opportunities, here are the limitations. What works for your neighborhood or what do you think works for the community as a whole? How would you know we're all using the same definition? Of what? Duplex to one person means something different to somebody else. Well, they, How do we know we have a yeah, we'll, are we going to put out the? LBS we're going to put out the definition. Out? We're going to put a visual with it. We're going to. We were thinking that this next round is is almost one of those visual preference surveys, like you know, three or four different kinds of duplexes. Hey, these are all duplexes. You know, they could go a variety of different places. We're looking for feedback on this. I think that's important because when Rebecca was talking, that's what popped into my head. I think part of what we're having trouble with in here is different well, concepts in our individual heads about what some of these terms are. Townhomes versus duplexes. What? What's the distinction? Yeah. Well, so townhomes would have to be added to that in terms of density, but townhomes are in, are not going to be. Um, everywhere, right? Yes, they're they're permitted. Town homes are permitted. Mm -hmm. yes. Single family. Yes, but again, in redevelopment areas, if you don't have that certain, you, you can't have. If there's not a townhome, there's not townhomes around there, then you can't just right. you know take out one house and put three townhomes. Doesn't meet the character of the neighborhood and setbacks and other things. It has to, yeah. It has to meet the, the base zoning district requirements mm -hmm. yeah. setbacks. It's not allowed in um, R one. Um, but townhomes are allowed in R2, 3, 4, and 5. It's, it's not in one. It's not in Just goes up to four. It goes up to four attached units, not up to eight attached units. And I think that was a discussion we had a meeting or two ago, a change we made when we were doing module one, bringing that R1 limit down to four, no matter what you're doing. 
So we decided we're going to release certain chapters. Nine through 12. Nine through 12. So that will be site and structures. That's all this design and housing stuff. Um, it will be, um, it will be connectivity. Thank you. Um, subdivision design and improvement and parking. I personally wouldn't be opposed to releasing all of it. And then if we see comments, then we can incorporate that into our discussion next time. I mean, unless there's something that anybody's seen that's like super objectionable and we don't want anybody to ever lay eyes on it. It seems like it'd be nice to gather feedback before we all back here. That's just me. I don't know. What you concerned about for a particular chapter? I, yeah, because beyond that, there's a lot of people that have not made comments yet on the environmental part of it. If we don't release it, they're not going to get comments. So the question is, do you have comments that you want to make before we release it, or do we want to release it to let them make comments? I think that's what that's that's the idea. If we don't release it, no one's going to see it until November 7th, yeah. and only thing that's going to happen is... It will be released after November 7th. Yeah. But More the, comments. Yeah. So the question is, do we want to release it now so people can make comments on it? I guess it's okay. We didn't really see... We yeah. didn't go through the comments. Yeah. But there's a lot of things. Yeah. So the question is I mean, we, we didn't go through every page of those other ones either. So I think right. what Nick is asking is is there something so glaring that you have that we don't want to release it now for comments that you have strong feelings about? We as a committee, not just you, I mean, we as a committee, or do we think it's enough that we should just go ahead and put it out there? I mean, we're still going to talk about it, right. obviously. I don't know if Elizabeth, if you have a Strong feeling. We got most of the new stuff in environmentally sensitive lands we got from MSO. So I would think it would be community oriented, but if you have flipped through it and don't like what's going on in there. I I flipped through it, but I did not have a chance to absorb a lot of it because we didn't really get it. I was traveling. So yeah, no, not trying to put you on the spot at all. Um, so I think what we're saying is if we put it all out to the public, you all can still talk about it. We'll see what feedback we have. There's no okay, stopping this. Go ahead and put it out it. to the public, but I really want to not be finalizing it on nope. November. We're not finalizing anything until June. Yeah. Okay. And we'll do at least November and probably. Yeah. I think at this rate, put that December 7th. December 7th. That works for everybody. Let's hold the date and um, we'll do, we'll keep going with this. But even just like, you know, Module one, we'll still be talking about module one, two, and three all the way through the end. It'll, it'll, we'll, it'll be well, thank you, everyone, um, so much. And we'll have lots of discussion and look forward to hearing from lots of people. Thank you. Yeah. So I'll be definitely Zoom on the 7th. What? I'll be Zoom on the 7th. That's good. That's fine. We'll be Zooming on the 7th. So <laughs> in cyberspace, that would be super. Okay, perfect. Thank you all. Thank you. Thanks, everybody. Thanks, everybody. Yes, let's